With summer comes heat, and with heat comes hazard. As a loyal listener of the Live Inspired podcast, you all know by now that the Keeley Companies is the leader and single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. Keeley Companies also understands that there is nothing more important than returning their team members home safely to their family each and every day. As we begin heading into the hot summer months, their very own VP of Risk Management, Rob Miller, has three key tips to staying safe in the summer heat. Rest, water, and shade. If you're going to be outside this summer, don't forget the importance of rest and water and shade. By empowering Keelians to do their part and follow practical tips for safety, it's clear why Keely Companies is recognized for their world-class safety culture, Keely Safe. You can learn more about Keely Safe and the work of Keely Companies by visiting them online at KeelyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. In many ways, we are living more comfortable lives right now than ever before. Yet could the modernization of cars and computers and climate control and processed foods be chipping away at our relational our physical, our mental, and our emotional health. Today in this episode, we are going to have investigative health journalist and my friend, his name is Michael Easter, join us. He's going to share the life-enhancing secrets of, you ready for it? Hope you're seated. Discomfort. You probably weren't expecting that, were you? Discomfort. I know, it sounds horrible. Well, Michael's going to explain to us why it is difficult to endure discomfort but also why it is absolutely life-changing. I read his book, and I'm going to save us a trip to the Arctic, okay? So while I do not expect you and I to travel plane ride after plane ride after plane ride and then hike on up into sub-zero terrain of the Arctic, today's conversation will help you and help me and help us embrace discomfort to reclaim our wild, our happy and our healthy self. You're going to love this episode, my friends. Without further ado, rise. Get ready to move around during this episode as I bring on my new friend, and now yours. His name is Michael Easter. Michael, welcome to Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This is going to be fun. A lot of times people are brought into my life by, by pure chance. And I feel like you are one of those individuals in my life. A friend gave me your book, The Comfort Crisis, and I brought it with me on spring break and was unable to set the thing down. It is such an awesome read. But for those who somehow missed my introduction or they have not yet checked out your book and you had to introduce yourself, who are you, man? I guess I classify myself as a person who writes about health, human performance, what it means to be human, kind of these like larger topics that I would classify under health. And I've done that most of my career. I'm also a professor at UNLV where I teach journalism. I'm ultimately a journalist. I don't think that you can report from behind a screen. You need to go out in the world and do sort of interesting things. You need to meet with people face-to-face. You need to put yourself into uh, interesting experiences and places. If you really want to understand the topics that you're writing about. So for example, for this book, 
Uh, I spent more than a month in the Arctic backcountry. I traveled to Bhutan. Uh, I traveled to Harvard. I traveled to Iceland. I mean, I was just all over the map because I think that's only that's really the only way that you can learn about something is by doing it. You know, there's been this um, sort of don't use I in your writing and journalism for so long. And it's like, well, like, I disagree with that. <laughs> I think it, I think it helps me transmit uh, the ultimate message that I'm trying to get my, give my readers, which is one of um, self-improvement and how to improve your lives uh, backed by science. I don't like the word I in my writing and work either. Although I recognize when someone is writing something or sharing something from, from a platform where they use the word I in order to elevate the audience. And as I read the comfort crisis, although it's your story and a whole lot of research, and we'll talk about that. I picked up on the story of a guy sharing all this so that we can learn. That's what I hope it ultimately becomes. In preparing for podcasts, I listen to everything, read everything, and then follow them where they are online, which means I've been stalking you on Instagram a little bit lately. Nice. And there's a lot I'd like to ask around that, but there's a beautiful picture with you and your arm around a beautiful lady mm -hmm. who you refer to as someone who's been cancer-free now for five years. Yeah. So I'm going to back this thing up even beyond that picture. Would, would you just start this conversation by talking about your mom? My father left us when I think she was five months pregnant. So the funny thing is before I was born, he went to rehab. And so as part of his rehab program, they give my mom a book. They're like, this is the book that he's going to read in rehab. Why don't you give this a read just so you kind of understand what he's going through. And as she puts it, she's like, you know, one night I'm sitting around like reading this book and I'm like, oh my God, like, this is me, you know, like, so long story short is my dad went to rehab and my mom was the one who ended up getting sober. Uh, and then my dad left and, you know, single parent, we were living uh, in a trailer on the side of a highway in Idaho. And it was kind of a bad hand, you know, and she ended up just, I think by sheer will, just putting in time and effort, a lot of work, getting us to a decent spot in life. I mean, it's not like we were rich by any means, but the reality is, is that most single, single mothers live under the poverty line. And that was definitely not us, you know, and the money that we did have, I like to say we would always have like the worst car in the neighborhood by far. <laughs> she would spend that uh, money taking us on an international vacation every summer. So really she just sort of used that as a tool to expand not only my mind, but her own. I mean, she's a workhorse. She's really inspiring. She's awesome. And she ended up getting breast cancer maybe six years ago. And even in that, I didn't even really hear her complain. Like the complaining she did was all just kind of this little stuff. And then she would kind of stop herself. And now she's, she's good to go. I can't say enough good things about that lady. In the little that you've shared, both with the me now and in previous interviews, I, I gather that she's just a remarkable human. And you had a very different example, or at least one that you did not learn how to do the right things from your father. And you begin by talking about this long lineage of Easter men. You uh, came upon this honestly, man, some of the addictions you eventually stumble into. Did you talk about your dad a little bit? To be honest, I don't, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about him because he wasn't, I've met him maybe like four or five times, but in general, the Easter family is well known in the Idaho prison system. Uh, we all tend to have a little bit of a criminal record and most of our problems are created by drinking, have a few drinks and raise some hell. That's kind of like what we're good at. Um, <laughs> now I found myself doing the same thing when I was, you know, in my teens and twenties and 
I found that when I would have one drink, you know, maybe like 19 or 20 more sounded like a good idea. So I used to always say that my favorite drink was the next one. And when that is how you drink, uh, you find yourself in some pickles in life, right? Like that works until it doesn't. Now, ultimately, I think the reason that I drank is because it made me more comfortable in a lot of ways with being myself, with dealing with stress, with dealing with trials with deal. I mean, just being more social. Right. And it also was like the only way I felt like I could really like let loose. And eventually it just got to a point where one morning I woke up and realized that, you know, this hobby that I had was going to kill me. Now I had tried to stop drinking tons of times before, like I'd done all kinds of wacky stuff to stop. It obviously never worked. And for whatever reason, that morning, it just became very clear to me that if I kept drinking, I was going to die early. You know, I didn't know if it was going to be when I was in my 30s or 40s or 50s or even 70s or 80s. I was going to die younger than I needed to. And the other path was to get sober. And that scared the heck out of me. And I realized that was going to be really hard. It's going to be the much harder thing to do. Uh, But ultimately, I took that path. And now I'm here. And I can say that literally every single thing in my life improved afterwards, like full stop. Name anything. (laughs) Bank account, relationships work productivity, on and on and on and on. Like it all just, it got better. For things to get better, it usually has to go through a period of profound stress and struggle. What what was a low part for you as you chose recovery? The lows of when I was out drinking were definitely lower than the the recovery part. You know, it's just like you, you keep sinking and sinking and sinking. The problem is, is that your mind is so messed up that you think, well, if I just have a drink, like that'll solve it in the short term. And that is absolutely true. It will solve it in the short term. The problem is, is you dig a little bit more as you do that. And it just keeps getting lower, right? But you just are going for this like short-term solution rather than choosing this thing that is going to be exceedingly hard over time, but in the long term is going to reap you a lot more rewards. You know, when I got sober, it was like, you have to, because of this, you have to completely relearn how to deal with problems and stress. It's like everything has to be relearned, right? And this applies across the board. You you said, John, everything got better. The bank account, the relationships, I actually worked. I got there on time and I was affected. Everything. How did it influence your writing? Oh, well, so it's funny because when I was drinking, it was like, I didn't think that it did was hurting my writing. And then maybe like a year after I got sober, my boss pulled me into his office and he just goes, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, your writing has just gotten a lot better over the last year. Like what, what's going on? It's funny because when I was drinking, I always used to tell myself like, oh, writers drink. I'm a big fan of Hunter S. Thompson. He was kind of one of my inspirations. Um, Hemingway drank, right? All these writers, they drink. That's what you do. So I thought, oh, that's what you have to do too. They had some really good short runs in their youth. Then you look at their work later on in life and it's, it's a mess. But I think generally the trend is like these guys sort of burn really fast, really bright. And maybe like, I'm definitely willing to say that maybe they're drinking help them during that time. But you hit a point where it's just like, okay, now you're a mess and it all just kind of goes to hell. You write about the experiences on the road, sometimes in Vegas, sometimes far beyond Vegas. When when did the notion of, hey, I'm going to get lost in the Antarctic appear in your life? That's a pretty radical trip. It's hard for me to sell my wife on a a guy's weekend fishing. Uh, You're about to disappear for more than a month to the Antarctic. Talk about that. 
I worked at Men's Health Magazine for a bunch of years. And while I was there, I got commissioned to do this story on this guy whose name is Donnie Vincent. And Donnie is this backcountry bow hunter and filmmaker, travels into the world's most remote, extreme, dangerous areas, and does these films that are kind of, I like to compare them to planet Earth, except that they have hunting in them. <laughs> so I do this story with him where we are in the Nevada backcountry for maybe like five days. You know, we're up in these mountains and we're hunting and I'm profiling him. And from that experience, a couple of things happen. One, it's that I write this story that really almost becomes like this very like 1500 word version of what the book became, where it's like by going off the grid, I experience all these different forms of discomfort because my relationship with alcohol and getting sober had told me that if you want to improve your life, if you want to improve your health, you're probably going to have to go through some form of discomfort. This is also some, something that I noticed while working at Men's Health. Everything we wrote about that was going to improve your health is going to be uncomfortable in the short term. So this time in Nevada exposes me to all these different forms of discomfort that are just totally removed from our lives now. And then eventually, um, so Donnie and I become friends from this. And eventually Donnie calls me up and he's like, do you want to go to the Arctic with me for more than a month on this extreme and dangerous hunt? You know, and um, he's quite the salesman. My initial reaction was kind of like, <laughs> but he just kind of gets into like this, you know, real amazing sales pitch. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And then I was in, you know, so I started training, I buy all the gear I need and we head out in these little planes that are about the size of a pack of gum. You wrote about the plane, you wrote about hoping that one of the pilots in one of the plane would not be the pilot in the plane that took you there. It ends up being both, both the pilot and the plane that's going to get you up there to the Arctic. How'd you get to the actual spot where you spent the following month? Like, just kind of walk us through uh, the journey you were on. Practically, like, how many flights did it take? It's like you fly from Vegas to Seattle to Anchorage to this town called Kotzebue. Um, from Kotzebue, you go to their regional airport, which is literally like some sheds on a piece of gravel. You take a plane from there that is a three-seater and we flew that out maybe more than 100 miles out to the middle of the Arctic. The pilot just lands and on the ground. They had the, the planes up there have these big tires called tundra tires that allow them to land on the middle of the tundra. And then you wait for a while because we need an even smaller plane to get to our very final point, which is where we're going to set off. So this plane that's a two-seater comes by and ferries us one after another to this, essentially this sort of mountaintop that had a flat spot. And that's where we started out. So we're talking like days of travel to get to this spot, which I, you know, which is something that I write about a little bit in the book is how far removed we are from nature, places that are really wild to get to a place that is far away from people. It's going to take a voyage like that, where I think is you know, in our past, we used to live in environments like that, where there just wasn't that many people around, completely wild, completely natural. And now you think, I mean, if you live, where do you live? St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. So that, that's slightly more rural. I was going to say, like, if you're on the East Coast, like New York City, it is so unbelievably hard to get anywhere that's not going to be packed with people. Yes. Since reading this book, I try to spend far more time in nature than I did before. Oh, good. Like you mentioned here in St. Louis, it's not that hard, man. You can almost go out the back door and be mm -hmm. there. But I feel radically different when I come back into the house than when I left it. 
So it, it has had an effect on me. You, you make this cr wild two-day journey. You eventually unload from the two-seater plane. You track off into the distance. You set up camp. And then it's all perfect for the next 33 days is not at all what happens. Would you talk about what happens on that very first night, man? We have this teepee that we're sleeping out of. It's basically just a tent that doesn't have a floor and is a, a lot higher so you can stand in it. So we, we pitched this thing on this ridge that at the time is protected from the wind. It's like, great. It's got a view, this campsite. I mean, it's just like, oh man, this is going to be great. Well, in the middle of the night, we start to hear this pop. It's like pop. Pop, 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 And it's the wind. The wind has shifted uh, to blowing directly at our teepee and it's starting to pick up. And so it's just like rocking this thing in the fabric and the wind picks up and up over time. And eventually this thing is in like hurricane force winds, like 70 miles an hour, and it's not going to hold. Now, the first rule of surviving the wild is always have a shelter. As long as you're protected, like you're going to be okay. The moment you lose your shelter, that's when things get dangerous. So we have to stage this emergency takedown super early in the morning, maybe 3 a.m., 4 a.m. or something in the middle of a hurricane. And I mean, the wind is blowing so hard that when, um, when I first unzip the door, it catches and, you know, the thing is staked down and with so much force that it throws one of the stakes hundred yards down the tundra. I mean, that's how crazy this is. Yeah. We almost lost the shelter that morning. Luckily we didn't. And that was, you know, one of the very first nights of the trip. And it was just like, welcome to the Arctic. Good luck, buddy. There are a million different ways to get hurt in life. When you uh, live in the creature comforts that we, we have at our disposal, listening to the live inspired podcast, you're in the middle of nowhere in the middle of a hurricane force wind with one of the one of the you know, stakes 100 yards downstream did you expect it to be as dangerous as it ended up being i did not know what to expect i didn't know if it was like there's going to be grizzlies every you know 20 yards <laughs> i didn't know what to expect and i think generally there were definitely a few moments that were pretty hairy as a whole, you're, you know, you're doing okay most of the time, but there are definitely some moments, you know, I think, I think what the difference is, if, if I were to kind of back up is that there's no safety net out there. That's what I was thinking, you know, if you lose that TP, I'm assuming the three of you guys aren't going to make it through that night. If we did, it'd be very hard. Right. And the problem is that, okay, you messaged to have the plane come back. Well, the plane's going to be like, yeah, it's windy. I can't fly. And then we had another morning where it was just so unbelievably cold probably negative 20 with the wind chill and we're like 10 miles from camp having to come back and i'm like oh my god i'm so exhausted i just want to like stop and you're just like oh wait if i stop like that would have been one if you stop or you're not making it it's just way too cold so you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other like it's it's very different than living you know kind of in the modern world where there's a lot of safety nets which is a good thing don't get me wrong. At the same time, if you always have a safety net and you are always like, oh, well, you know, I can kind of back off now because I can, you know, just walk home in my air conditioning or whatever. Uh, I don't think you really learn what you're capable of, right? Because you don't have a moment where you're like, I either have to um, dig deep and find what I'm capable of or things are going to go bad. So I'm just going to start unpacking 
some that you shared in the book and some that I just picked up reading between the lines, but distractions outside of the, the hurricane force storm that blows in on day one. And then the active hunting that you were part of, there's a lot of downtime. There's a, there's a lack of distractions. In other words, w what was that like for you to be out in the middle of nowhere for 33 days with so few distractions? The cell phone doesn't work at all. Like there's no, there's no bars of service up there, right? That I didn't bring books, magazines, computers, all that stuff. You find yourself in a strange state and that is bored for a long time. Now, what did we do when we got bored? We read the labels on our food. I did more push-ups than I think I'd done in a year. Came up with ideas for the magazines that I write for, all this different stuff. Now, this is totally different than how I would have dealt with boredom where I at home, right? Hmm. Would have just pulled out my cell phone. So boredom is interesting because it's this evolutionary discomfort that basically told us as we evolved, whatever you're doing with your time right now, the return on your time invested has worn thin. So go do something else. So let's say you and I are hunting. We need food or else we're going to die, right? We're going to starve. We're on this hill and the animals just aren't coming through. Boredom would kick in and basically say, hey, go do something else. And then we could go pick berries or some other food and stay alive. But nowadays, I argue in the book, when we feel this discomfort of boredom that used to tell us, go do something else. And that something was usually pretty productive. Um, we just have a million different screens that we can look at. I mean, our phone is obviously an obvious one, but you know, people spend more than 12 hours a day on digital media now. I mean, 12 hours. All this stuff is less than 100 years old. Think about that. In the grand scheme of time, like humans have been around some form or another for two and a half million years. We had nothing digital in our lives. Now, like two thirds of our days are spent in this digital stuff. And that has undoubtedly changed us and our attention, how we live our lives, the pace of our lives, like what we think about, how we interact with others, like all these things, just such a profound shift. I'm not saying that all this is, is bad by any means. Like, right. Well, for example, this podcast, you're getting good information on it, right? There's great stuff on Netflix. There's, I've met good friends on Instagram and all that. But at the same time, I am sort of saying 12 hours. Do we think that that might be too much? <laughs> you know? So agreed on the benefits of technology. Let's talk and unpack a few of the, the, the negative aspects of mm -hmm. being online digitally 12 hours a day. What are some of the things that are happening within our bodies or minds or sense of self as we are looking at a screen two thirds yeah. of the day? So one is that it's definitely associated with this crazy rate of anxiety and depression that we now have. And part of the reason is that when you're focused on the outside world, like on a screen, you know, watching TV, your brain is actually working pretty hard. Whereas when you have these moments of boredom, you tend to mind wander and mind wandering is more like a rest and relaxation state. So we spend so much time in this like crazy, crazy work mode that it sort of burns out our brain over time. Whereas if we get more time in the rest mode, that seems to be restorative to people. Another one is uh, creativity. So there's these wild studies where they'll take uh, two groups of people. Now the first group of people, they let them do whatever they want, put them in a room. They say, yeah, just hang out here for a minute and they'll all go on their cell phone or whatever. Now the other group, they bore the living heck out of these people. And then they give both groups the same creativity test. And the, and the group that was bored, they always come up with more, more creative answers than the non-bored group. It's because boredom seems to give you time to sort of your brain, this relaxation state to sort of mind wander, come up with weird ideas. 
for the average person to understand this, uh, it's why you probably have your best ideas in the shower because you're not doing anything, right? You're just kind of like your brain is out there wandering. And then finally, I mean, I just back to that whole idea of our lives have become digital media more or less, you know, if you're, if you're on it for 12 hours, it's like at the end of your life, are you going to be like, man, I really wish I could have got to 13 hours a day. That, that's what I was missing, right? It's like, no, you're going to, you're not going to remember all this time you spent on media. You are going to remember these moments that you were more present and focused doing other things. So you're, you're speaking to the ordinary listener, including the guy asking the questions today, as we try to take back the vibrancy and the promise of our lives. There's a quote in this book that I underlined, and I'm going to read it to you word for word. You tell me what it means. And then you tell me, how do we achieve this in the busyness of our lives? Boredom is now infrequent enough that the sight of someone doing nothing can be jarring. Tell me yeah. why that is. And then tell me, how do we find that time to experience boredom? That was inspired by one of my friends because I was talking to him about this and he was like, he's like, dude, the other night I was laying in bed and I wasn't, I wasn't doing anything. Like I wasn't on my phone. I wasn't on, I didn't have the TV on. I was just like lying there with my hands on my chest, staring at the ceiling, just kind of thinking. And my wife came in and was just like, what the hell's wrong with you? You know, <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, she was just so creeped out by this. She was like, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, just leave me alone, you know? But it is like strange if you think about being on a subway or a bus or in a doctor's office, if there's someone there just like sitting, doing nothing, you're like, what is wrong with that person? So how do we, how do we find boredom? I write about in the book, as you kind of alluded to, that there's a lot of benefits in nature. And I find it really beneficial to take at least a 20 minute walk every day without my, it doesn't have to be every day. I do it every day. Take a 20 minute walk outside without your phone, like no electronic devices and just let your mind go where it needs to go. Be like, you're setting aside this time to really just do nothing. And you're also getting some nature, which we know is also good. So you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. I want to come back to nature after sharing this little tidbit. I had a trip to Raleigh, North Carolina, and then on to Buffalo, New York, probably six years ago. And when I got to the airport in St. Louis, recognized, dude, I forgot my phone. So for three entire days, it's not quite going to the Arctic for more than a month, but it's a similar experience, three days without a phone. And looking back on a 15-year speaking career, being all over the place, those were the best three days of travel of my entire life. Not once looked down, looked up, was present. It was a completely different experience than any trip leading up to that or any trip following that one. So tell me, why do you think that is? Why do our phones steal our attention to the degree they do? Because we evolved to want to avoid discomfort in all forms and boredom is a form of discomfort, right? It's like, that's what, that kept us alive for so long. I mean, that's the theme of the book is that if you avoided discomfort as humans evolved, that would keep you alive, right? If you were bored, that was a bad thing because you weren't doing these things we needed to do to survive. Like life back then used to require constant work, food, getting shelter, all that kind of thing avoiding the cold, avoiding too hot. That was a threat to your safety, right? Hunger. You didn't ever want to be hungry because there was rarely enough food, right? There's all these different forms of discomfort. Like discomfort is this thing we evolved to feel so we could fight back against it and how we would fight back to keep us alive. Well, now as the world has become more comfortable and we have easier access to resources and easier access to all these different things, we still have this thing telling us like always avoid comfort or always avoid discomfort, but we now live comfortable lives and this backfires. So anthropologists call this a evolutionary mismatch where these things that we develop to feel or do 
that used to keep us alive in one environment, when you place us in another environment, they backfire and they hurt us. So another example would be um, food. We evolved to crave really calorie dense food because if you could eat more calorie dense food and overeat it, you would add fat to your frame. And then when the lean times inevitably came, you could draw on that fat to survive. You didn't have food. Well, now we still crave sugar, salt, and fat. But like, when's the last time you literally had like no food at all for more than 72 hours or something? Like never, there's always food around. I'll sometimes get some pushback on that because people will say, well, there's hunger around the globe. So yes, that's true. But hunger is often a problem with distribution rather than simple availability of food. You, you mentioned 15, 20 minute walks a day. I leave my phone behind. What's forest bathing and why should we consider bathing in the forest a little bit more frequently? So this is research that was uh, started in Japan in the 80s. But basically, it's, um, it sort of has spread out from there. There's all these different institutions researching how time in nature is good for us. And there's different doses that seem to have different effects. So I talked about this concept called the nature pyramid. And to learn about this, I met with a researcher whose name is Rachel Hopman. And basically you can think of the nature pyramid kind of like the food pyramid, except for instead of saying like, eat this much grains and this much meat, tells you how much time you should spend in different types of nature. So at the bottom is 20 minutes, three times a week. And the type of nature you can find in like a city park or really tree-lined street, that's associated with increases in productivity and decreases in stress. Then the next rung is five hours, yes, five hours a month. And that's in the type of a little bit wilder nature, like you would find in like a state park. You know, there's trails and that sort of stuff, but there still might be a bathroom pretty close. That's associated with um, increases in happiness and decreases in depression. And then at the very top is this concept called the three-day effect. Basically says that three days uh, once a year in backcountry nature. So this is stuff you're going to have to like hike into. There's not going to be bathrooms around. This is kind of like more off the grid. Probably not going to have cell phone service. Basically what happens is in the modern world, our brain rides what are called beta waves. Now these are sort of like frenetic waves that are kind of go, go, go. They're associated with burnout, all this stuff. And after three days in nature, your brain starts to ride what are called alpha waves. Now, alpha waves are the same exact waves that are found in experienced meditators. So they're associated with calm, with feelings of life satisfaction, with just like, oh, I feel so great. The world is so wonderful, right? I'm just like happy, feel good. I'm super satisfied with everything in my life. Those feelings that you get, they don't go away right when you get back into your everyday life. So they tend to stick around for a while. So a lot of institutions are looking at extended time in nature as a way to treat veterans with depression, to treat hard to treat um, depression cases, PTSD cases, et cetera. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I would imagine it's possible that a listener is tuning in thinking, I'm glad this works for a young nature writer out there, but it doesn't work for me. And I don't understand the benefits of this in the first place. And now, now, Michael, you're starting to say, hey, it's not just about like kind of feeling vaguely better. It's transformational in the way you are internally and the way you show up physically. Talk, talk about what you learned about stress, what you learned about chronic illness, what you learned about some of the other challenges like this through the research of this book and through modeling it in your own life. Yeah, I mean, most chronic diseases are relatively new in the grand scheme of time and space. Obesity and its related diseases weren't really a thing until around 1900. 
um, heart disease was is relatively new too. So why do we have the now then? Well, it's because we've engineered the world over time to become very comfortable. Our food system is built around comfort food, right? Really calorie dense stuff. We've engineered movement out of our lives because exercise is uncomfortable, right? Having to walk is harder than just driving. We spend less time in nature. Nature's unpredictable. Nature's hot. Nature's cold. Nature's windy. Nature's rainy, right? So we spend, we now spend, I think, 95% of our time indoors. So our world has just transformed radically, especially over the last hundred years. The way that it has transformed is becoming more comfortable. It is these things that we find uncomfortable that ultimately keep us healthy. So for example, exercise, like one of the best things you can do for your health is just get enough movement. Now the average person, they get like 4,000 steps a day or something. Well, in the past humans used to get like 20,000 steps every single day, right? So it's just like profound, the shift over time. And we so easily adapt to it. We just don't realize like how far the bar has moved over time. And it's that kind of stuff that ultimately keeps us healthy. And, and again, it's like all these things that are going to be uncomfortable in the short term, but you're going to be way better off in the long term. For those who have read your book, maybe your mother is one of them or your wife, another mm-hmm. or neighbor down the street and said, this is intense, man. I mean, you're asking me to, to do things that are hard that are, they cause discomfort. Where do we find the motivation to choose the, the harder thing, whether that's around finances or health or wellness or faith or relationship, it's all, the, it's all hard. So how do we find the motivation to do the thing that we don't naturally want to do? One thing to be clear on is like, I'm not suggesting people go to the Arctic totally. like I did. Like I definitely went to the extreme to learn something, right? What is really, truly amazing is like just how big of benefit you can get from doing a little bit. So when people think like, oh, I need to exercise, they'll be like, oh, I'm going to go. I'm going to, I guess I have to run a marathon. Oh, that seems crazy. I don't want to do that. I mean, if, if you don't exercise much, like the, the people who do the least amount, see the biggest benefits from anything. I mean, the benefits of, are crazy. Like if you're walking 4,000 steps a day and you increase it to six, like your risk of cardiovascular disease will like literally be cut in half. So I think that realizing to just start easy and do something like, yeah, it's, it's not going to be quite as easy as sitting on the couch and watching Netflix, (laughs) right? but the benefits you're going to get are going to far outweigh that. And I also find that sometimes people, I think, you know, the human brain basically evolved to protect us. What you find is that we tend to get more worked up and anxiety ridden over the thought of doing something than we do the actual thing. Like the actual thing is never quite as bad as we think. People think that when they get hungry, people like might feel a tiny bit of hunger. And then they go, oh my God, if I, if I let this go on, it's just going to build and build and build. It's like, well, no, that's not really how it works. It'll just kind of be what it is now. Maybe it'll be a little bit more. It'll kind of go away sometimes. Like things don't get worse and worse and worse. Same with exercise. It's like, once you're actually exercising, your brain is telling you stop, stop, stop. But if you can sort of reframe and be like, well, how, how bad is it? How bad is this? It's usually not as bad as you really think. What's the benefit of pushing yourself farther than you thought you could or should? Well, I think that it ultimately can improve your life across the board because, you know, for in the book, I talk about this concept 
called uh, Masogi. And the idea is that uh, every year, one time, I'm going to do something really, really hard in nature. And there are only two rules. <laughs> this is something I learned from a guy whose name is Marcus Elliott. He's this Harvard-educated uh, MD who got into sports science. And so now he works with all these pros in the NBA and the NFL and MLB. I mean, he's really revolutionized sports science. But he also realizes that, like, what improves a person's potential, it can't always be measured, right? There are certain immeasurables. It's like, why are there certain players in the game who you go, you know, that person may not be the best night to night, but when it comes down, there's like two seconds left on the clock and we need to win. We're giving the ball to that lady or that guy, right? Like, what is that intangible thing? And to get to that, enter this idea of Masogi. The idea is you do one really hard thing every single year. And the two rules are that it, you have a 50-50 shot of accomplishing it. And then number two is that you can't die. Now that is tongue in cheek way of saying, be safe. If you think about it, as humans evolved, we used to have to do really hard things like all the time. And this was never with a safety net and failure, in fact, could often mean death. But what, what would happen is each time we would take on one of these tasks, whether it would be from hunting or, you know, moving from summering to wintering grounds, we would learn what our potential was. We would get put in a position where we had to dig deep and really find ourselves and then we would come out on the other side and be like, wow, I'm a lot more capable than I ever thought. But we don't really have those moments anymore that really push back at us, that put us in that position where it's like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to complete this thing, right? And so by mimicking that in our modern life, you can come back on the other side and be like, wow, I just did this really big thing that I didn't really think I could do. You know, and I had moments where I wanted to quit, but I didn't quit and I kept going. And you can come back and that sort of shows you, oh, okay. You know, I had some moments back there where I sold myself short, where I thought I wanted to quit, but I didn't quit. And maybe I'm selling myself short in other areas in life. And that realization, I think, can be really empowering because the reality is, is that like humans are capable of an unbelievable, unbelievable things, like totally full stop. <laughs> we would have died off were we not, right? But our world no longer puts us in a position to really realize that. And we have to kind of artificially go find that. You write about that from an individual perspective, pushing yourself, no doubt, but also from a parenting perspective. So to my moms and dads and grannies and, and uncles in the room, pay attention. Helicopter parenting, you wrote, showed up generally in the 90s. Would you quickly give us the backstory of what caused this and then what the effect of this has been? Yeah, so helicopter parenting, it pops up in the 90s. That's because there was a couple of really high profile kidnapping cases. Now, kidnapping was not actually increasing. It was in fact decreasing, but it, there was just these really high profile cases that were in the media. And so parents all of a sudden got freaked out, right? They're like, oh, I don't want you to get kidnapped. So you can't go outside and spend all this time outside anymore alone as a kid, right? No more like just come home when the street lights go out type parenting like there used to be. So parents start to be really, you know, protective over their kids. And, and what ends up happening is that kids who are born after 1990, that was really the year that started, they tend to have uh, far more mental health problems because they've never really been tried, right? They've never had these moments where they go out in the world and they sort of learn something about themselves. They face these challenges that they would have outdoors and doing things with other kids. And so now when challenges come along and hit them, they don't really have the gear to adequately face those. And so it sort of leads to some issues. 
You mentioned this idea of, of being motivated to do the difficult things. And what I've always found to be highly motivating is when you're afraid of dying. Over the weekend, a coffee with a friend who recently quit smoking. After probably two decades of choosing to smoke, he is now 36 days into being free, painfully mm -hmm. being free of smoking. And I asked him why. And he, he looked at me very honestly and said, John, I was wheezing in the morning and I realized I didn't want to die like this. I didn't want to mm -hmm. die like this. Which brings us to your experience of learning about the power of thinking about your own death. I'm, I'm going to share a quote from your book. I love this one. In Bhutan, a place you travel to in Bhutan, they learn to see themselves not always as a living person, but as a dying person. Talk about the, the power of that quote, not only as a living person, but as a dying person. I started thinking about this because we were up in the Arctic and hunting and I'd never hunted before. I found that that experience of hunting really changed me because it made me appreciative of the food I eat, right? It also made me realize for one thing to live on, another has to die. It's what our food system is based on, right? Unfortunately, I am not excluded from that formula, right? I started thinking about how in the US, we generally don't want to think about or talk about death, right? Our funeral system is, is built on, make someone look as alive as possible. We all go view them and then we, they go on the ground and then we're told to keep our mind off it, right? Stay busy. Now, this is different from uh, Bhutan, which is a country um, that's near Nepal and in India. And in Bhutan, people are instructed to think about death at least you know, three times a day, one to three times a day. And death is really um, built into the cultural consciousness there. What research has actually found and backed this up is that it makes people happier. So Bhutan, even though it's one of the least developed nations on earth, scores super low in the development index. They're also one of the happiest. So they consistently rank in the top 20 happiest countries on earth, right? So we often think in the United States, oh, if you want to be happier, you just need more money and stuff. It's like, oh, well, that's not necessarily true if you look at Bhutan because, you know, there's not, there's not even a stoplight in the entire country. There's not McDonald's, there's not Starbucks. People don't have a lot of stuff. Yet they're consistently super happy. And the researchers think part of the part of the reason for this, there's a lot of them, um, is their relationship with death. Basically, what happens is, and I had one person that I met with there tell me, you know, think about think about it as walking along a trail, and there's a cliff in 500 yards. Now, the catch is that the cliff is death. We are all walking to it this moment. He goes, well, wouldn't you want to know that there's a cliff there? Because right? if you know there's a cliff there, it might change how you walk the trail. You might have different conversations with the people you're walking it with. You might take in the beauty of the trail, right? Well, in the United States, we don't want to hear about the cliff. We're just like, oh, it's not a cliff there. I'm just going to keep on walking, right? In Bhutan, uh, they definitely want to hear about the cliff. And what tends to happen, uh, the researchers think, is that by realizing that, you know, this ride is eventually going to end, it changes people's behavior where they start to realize oh, like I got to figure out what I actually want to do with my short amount of time here, right? It becomes very centering. You do things that are ultimately going to make you more happy. You make decisions that are going to make you more happy. You don't get as worked up about the everyday kind of silly little things that we tend to get worked up about. That's so good. Thank you for sharing that. And, and as we get ready to move into what we call the Live Inspired 7 questions here, just a few more around that experience being so so set apart from society and civilization. You're getting ready to board a plane to head home. 
you eventually get into it. I'm curious, what were you most sad to be leaving? So what were you most sad to be leaving? What were you most excited to be returning home to? Sad to be leaving would be the pace of life out there much slower. The silence, it's unbelievably silent out there. Now, at first I wrote about in the book how this was totally freaky. Humans don't like silence, makes us uncomfortable. But once you kind of get on the other side of that, you're like, oh my God, this is so nice. So nice. I think it's, you know, it's like I felt the most calm and collected I'd ever felt in my life up there. And I think it was a combination of just the name of everything I'm writing about in this book of actually having to work hard to survive, but of also the silence time that isn't so, I mean, it's so much slower pace up there, right? It's like you really just slip into a routine that is relaxing and calming and like it really changes you. So I was most um, sad to leave that. Most happy to get back to would just be my wife and dogs. I mean, having that time up there, it starts to really just peel away at what is important to you, right? And what ended up being what I found was just, you know, people I love. And that was basically it. And animals, apparently. <laughs> uh, my wife recently went away for a three-day weekend and holding her when she got back was so good felt so new again and i would imagine after being gone for more than a month to hold the loved one must have been uh, recharging for both of you what what's next i know you're working on another book yeah i'm yeah i'm busy working on this next book it's uh working title is called the scarcity brain it's almost like kind of a jumping off from this last book that looks at kind of bigger thing going on and, and that's that we as humans we evolved in environments of scarcity of all different things everything from food to stuff, to information, to the number of people we could influence, all these different things. And our world is now one of abundance of all those things. So it looks at how that's changing us and how we can think about managing that in a way that isn't totally crazy, like throwing out all your goods and living in the woods or something insane <laughs> like that. <laughs> Do not join Michael Easter on a trip to the Arctic is what he's saying. There's, there's a better way to yes. turn a healthy, vibrant, joyful life. Michael, when people read The Comfort Crisis, how do you hope they are changed afterwards? Oh, I just hope they do so anything from it, right? It's like, do something. If it, I mean, you might read it and be like, no, I think I'm good. But if you feel like, oh, something inspired me, like actually do it, right? And I've had people um, reach out to me. It's been really cool. But I've had people, people reach out to me about all different things in the book. I mean, the book is not about one thing. I look at a lot of different things and I've had people reach out and say, you know, I'm spending more time in nature and it's done X, Y, and Z for me. And that gave me this benefit that changed this. As we wrap up this show, we're going to guide you and our listeners through what we call the Live Inspired Seven. These are seven questions that tether all of our guests together. And the very first one, it's kind of a layup question. Easy for a guy like you, a well-read human being. What's the most influential book you've ever read? I would probably say into thin air just because I read it when I was maybe 13 years old. And I think that gave me this bug to do adventure journalism. Tell us what into thin air is about. Uh, it's by a guy whose name is John Krakauer. He wrote another book that's probably a little more famous called into the wild, which there was a movie about it into thin air is about this expedition up Mount Everest. in I think it was 1996 that ended tragically. And he was on this climb. He was doing a, article for outside magazine about uh, Mount Everest and climbing it. And 
there was just this massive disaster on the mountain that he was there for. And it's, it's really fascinating the way he tells uh, the narrative while also giving history about Mount Everest and also sort of the science of what it's like up there and all these different things are woven in. And that really inspired me. Dude, when, when I was reading your book, I thought of him actually and those two books. And I feel like you're a little more clinically based. The rugged style of the writing is similar. So I hope you take that as the high praise that it is. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What, yeah. What's probably the, my favorite book of all time is his Under the Banner of Heaven, which I think they just made into a series. What, what's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid that you wish you modeled as brilliantly today? Oh, probably being more outgoing. <laughs> As a kid, I was that like little weirdo at the grocery store who said hi to everyone, you know? <laughs> I'm definitely more reserved now. If your home caught fire and the dogs and your bride are out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come back with? Probably that flag that you can see right there in that letter. It's from a guy who's a Green Beret who read the book. Yeah, just changed him. And he, he uh, wore that flag under his kit in Iraq and Afghanistan and sent it to me. Congrats. That's beautiful. Yeah, so that was cool. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be speaking to? My terrible but quick answer would be Jerry Garcia. But my <laughs> my more intellectual one might be probably a writer, maybe like Hunter Thompson, um, 70s era Hunter Thompson, probably. First, why Garcia and then why Thompson? Just because uh, I'm a big fan of the Grateful Dead. And Garcia was really fascinating dude who liked to have fun. I mean, I think my three rules for life are be nice, pay attention, have fun. And I think Garcia definitely got number three. Uh, Thompson, just because he'd be fun to talk to and his writing is so good. I just think it would be interesting to get his perspective on things, how they are now. Probably, probably I'll add a third and that would be Joseph Campbell. Uh, I'd like to talk to him. Yeah. He's a fascinating guy as well. So. Packed bench. The next one is out of those three or anybody else, what's the best advice you've ever received? It wasn't necessarily advice, but when I was getting sober, I remember this guy was just telling me kind of, some story of his life. And he said, you know, I had this moment where I realized I'm just not that damn important. And that for me was like, whoa, yeah, I'd never really thought that I may not be that damn important either. And once you realize that, <laughs> I think it opens up a lot of space. You're not as self-conscious, but you also realize like, maybe I should focus on someone other than myself for a moment here, right? I think humility, it often gets positioned as like, Oh, I don't show that I, you know, I'm good at X, Y, or Z. No, humility is realizing that like in the grand scheme of time and space, you're probably not that important right. and then acting accordingly. What, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? So eight years before you got sober and 15 years before the book came out, what advice would you give yourself? I don't know. I, I don't think I'd really change anything. Um, before we recorded, I, you know, told you that the sobriety thing, you would think that having a problem with alcohol would be a bad thing. I guess it would be if I never overcame it, but I wouldn't change a single thing about how things have gone in my life. Things haven't always been great, but I wouldn't change that because I learned from those things. You know, there's been a good balance of bad and good. So Michael Easter, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I don't know. That's a big question. Feel discomfort and grow. Something like that.
I'll have to think about that. Give me like 50 years to think about that. Call me when I'm <laughs> like 90. <laughs> uh, Michael Easter felt the discomfort. He certainly grew through it and he took us along for a ride, reminding us that we don't have to live through his foot footsteps. We can choose to live through our own and what a gift it has been to realize that. So Michael, I want to thank you for the book. Thank you for the research. Thank you for the words of encouragement and for helping challenge the way I live my life. It has made a difference. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for having me, John. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you. It was great. That is Michael Easter. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live well, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you don't have to go off the grid for a month to the Arctic to test your safety net. Try leaving your comfort zone and live a happier and healthier life by adopting the 25-3 Nature Pyramid. 20 minutes, three times a week in a city park, okay? Five hours a month in a semi-wild nature, like a state park, for instance, and then three days a year. You can do this. I can too. Where you go off the grid, where you go camping, where you leave behind your cell phone, and you embrace the great gift and the miracle of nature and of life. We have had the honor not only of having Michael Easter talk about the power of living without technology for a while, the power of leaving behind what we know to adventure boldly into life, but a whole lot of other adventure speakers, thinkers, writers on our podcast. If you want to follow any of them and listen to their stories, let me encourage you to stand up, move around a little bit, and uh, come join us on the Live Inspired Podcast you can check out all of our guests by visiting me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. So my friends, with your backpacks on for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day, fellow adventurers. Choose to live inspired. One thing I love most about my friends at Keeley Companies is their spirit and their passion for giving back to their communities across the nation. Keeley Companies was recently named a top corporate philanthropist by the St. Louis Business Journal, and I could not think of a more deserving organization to receive that honor. In 2021 alone, the Keeley Cares Foundation served countless people in need donated more than $2 million, and served for more than 20,000 hours. On top of that, they added an astounding 13 new charities to their ever-growing wall of compassion. Here at the Live Inspired Podcast, we are proud to partner with Keeley Cares throughout the year, improving our communities with time, with talent, and with treasure. You can learn more about their unbelievable impact by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com.